so Chip mentioned at the outside of the, the sur- outset of the service that Friday night we were looking at the first part of Isaiah chapter 53, which talks about the suffering servant, talks about the, the picture of Christ on the cross. Isaiah was written about 700 years or so before Jesus lived, and astoundingly, everything that Isaiah says actually happened in complete accuracy as he described it. So Good Friday, we were looking at that side of the coin, but usually when you study Isaiah 53, you forget that there's actually a second part of it that speaks to the resurrection, not just to the suffering of Jesus, but to the aftermath of that suffering. And a question that's asked a lot in our culture is, you know, what does, if anything, the resurrection mean to you? And people come up with all different kinds of answers to that question, but rarely does anybody say, I wonder what it actually means to Jesus. After all, he's the one that was raised from the dead. So what kind of implications does that have for him? And what kind of implications maybe does that have for us? Did that event in history actually change anything? Did it shape anything? So you can think of events in our history that did shape our world. Uh, I was only four years old on November 2nd, or excuse me, 22nd in 1963, but I knew that something was wrong because my mom and the mailman were standing there looking at our TV and they were very upset. I didn't quite know what assassination meant. I, I certainly at four years old didn't know the name of the president, but it was clear that something was wrong. And that was a day really that, that changed everything. Those who lived in the generation before mine would probably say that moment for them was when they learned about the attack on Pearl Harbor. And how from that day forward, the world has never been the same. Maybe for some of you that are a little bit younger, you would look at the 9-11 attacks and you would say, that's the day for me when I, when I knew the world was going to change and it was never going to be the same again. You could take all of those events and many, many more of them in the course of human history and stack them all up and they would pale in comparison to the impact that the, and the implications that the resurrection has had on mankind, but also the implications for the Messiah, the one who came to give himself for us. We're going to read this morning out of God's Word, Isaiah 53. It's 12 verses long, uh, and I'm going to read all of it, although we're only going to look at verses 10, 11, and 12 in the teaching time, but it's important that you have the context of the entire message. You can follow on the screen, you can follow along in your own Bibles. Hear the Word of God. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs. And carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that has led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away, and as for his generation, 
Who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous, my, the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Will you pray with me? Father, Easter morning is a, a morning of celebration, whether uh, we're believers or not, whether we know anything at all about Christianity or devoted followers and disciples of Jesus, uh, it's a day that our culture celebrates. For many, it, it's simply a, an acknowledgement that spring is arriving, that winter has passed, and it's, it's time to, to break out the, the bright colors and enjoy the warmth of the coming months. Father, as we enter into this room this morning, we come uh, with Easter on our minds, but knowing that that could mean a lot of different things to us. Lord, we would know what Easter means to you, why the resurrection is the turning point of human history, why the implications of this event are eternal and infinite in their scope and in their impact. So Lord, we pray that you would teach us. We pray that you would quiet our hearts from probably the busyness of the weekend of getting ready for the morning and, and maybe even a rush to get to church and get everybody ready to go and, and thinking about going out afterwards and, and all that comes with this weekend and so much of it filled with joy. Father, help us to just be still for a few moments. Not because I'm speaking, my words are just simply not very important at all. They're no more than the words of a man. We hear those all the time and uh, they're just one more person's opinion. Father, we need to hear from the living God. We need to hear the truth that never changes, that is always consistent, and always speaks directly to us. So, Father, help us this morning to worship you with our minds. Father, forgive me my sin. Please don't let me stand in the way of your truth today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So our sermon in the sentence this morning is really a question. Jesus understood the grand implications of his resurrection. Do we? Uh, we're going to see what Isaiah says this morning speaks to what Jesus knew as he went to the cross and as he was risen from the dead. This is not uh, new information for the Lord, uh, but perhaps it's a bit of new information for us. It's important for us to understand the implication of the, re the implications, excuse me, plural, of the the resurrection. And I'm going to suggest four of them this morning out of verses 10 uh, and 11 and 12. The first is this, that God's family name, because of the resurrection, is now safe. Think about your family name for a moment and what that might mean. Uh, and everybody wants to hopefully have their family name uh, carry on into perpetuity. So we're getting to the stage now, we're in the stage now where we're having grandchildren. 
Our oldest son, Nathan, is married, and his first three uh, siblings, his first three offspring were all little girls. And then Katie, our, our middle child, got pregnant, and she called and said, when they found out, when she and Richard found out, she said, Dad, I'm so sorry, but it's going to be a girl. You know, and I said, Katie, why are you sorry? She goes, well, I know how much you want a boy. And I said, Katie, you can have a dozen girls. It isn't going to matter any wit to me at all because your last name's now Thompson. It's not Rick's. <laughs> I can actually be magnanimous and, and honestly say, it doesn't matter if it's a boy or a girl. And, and be honest about it. So I say to Nate, Liz just had another little baby. It doesn't matter if it's a boy or a girl. I really knew it was a boy eventually to carry my name on, right? Well, that's what I'm thinking inside. And so a week ago Friday, we had a boy. So the Rick's name is going to carry on, right? Some are clapping, some are booing. I get it. I understand, right? Think about the name of Jesus. Think about now 2,000 years later, what that name means. Think about what it's going to mean an eternity from now. But maybe more importantly, think about three days before the resurrection, what the name of Jesus meant. Think about what Isaiah wrote here. He was despised. He was rejected. He was one whom, whom we did not esteem. When people spoke the name of Jesus, it, it, it was spit out of their mouth. They, they said it with venom and with anger and with hatred. Remember, his best friend in the whole world, Peter, even the, denied that he ever knew him. And he called down curses from heaven at the name of Jesus. Here we are three days later, and it seems like everything has changed. How does Jesus go from being despised and rejected to the fact that he will see his offspring, and that's going to be a positive thing? Because after all, if your last name is Booth, you don't name your son John Wilkes. If your last name is Oswald, you don't name your son Lee Harvey. If your last name is Ray, you don't name your son James Earl. Those are names of infamy. Those are names that have awful connotations with them. Those are names that we, when we hear those names, we're struck with sadness or we're struck with anger or we're, struck, we're stuck, struck with dreams of what might have been. And yet the name of Jesus in, in, in three short days goes from being a name of one who is rejected to one who is going to see his offspring forever and ever. The resurrection made the name of Jesus good forever. Why? Because he's going to see his offspring. He's going to see his children and their children and their children. In other words, he's going to make you and me and anybody else who puts their faith in him sons and daughters of the living God. Look at Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. God sent forth Jesus born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons or as, as the special child is really the, the, the way that word reads, as the firstborn, the one of privilege. And because you are, you are the children of privilege, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit that cries, Abba, Father, that term of intimacy. Abba in, in, in the Greek means daddy. The notion there is one of a child who longs to be in their father's arms. If you're a disciple of Jesus and you have that relationship with God and, and he's your Abba Father, it's there and you are the offspring of God and that's an implication of the resurrection. Because if Jesus doesn't rise from the grave, there is no hope for you and for me. Because what the cross did, where it was a name and derision, it's now seen in its fuller context. 
You see that the law demands justice. At just the right time, Jesus came, what? To redeem those under the law. And you and I are lawbreakers. And if you, we're not going to look at the text this morning, but you can go back to Leviticus 5, which is the specific text that Isaiah is speaking to in this notion of our guilt. And the law of Leviticus says that we've done two things. We've offended a holy God, but we've also hurt our fellow man. Almost all of my sins exclusively end up hurting somebody else. I don't sin in a vacuum. I don't rebel against God in a vacuum. And when I rebel against God, the net result is someone else typically gets hurt. And God says, Tom, you're accountable for that. And he should. Nobody should get away with that kind of damage to other people. Everyone should be held accountable. If God doesn't hold us accountable for our sins, he is not God at all. But God is perfectly just, but he's also perfectly merciful. And so Jesus becomes our guilt offering. He becomes the one who replaces our unrighteousness with his righteousness. And then he goes one step further. He adopts us as his children into his family. So as one of the uh, theologians wrote on this text, we stray like sheep. We return as children. The guilt offering has been made. All that remains now is the gathering of the family. The implication, the first implication of the resurrection is that the family name is safe. The second is that Jesus makes the ultimate investment, which pays eternal dividends. The, excuse me, the will of the Lord shall what? Shall prosper in his hands. So you think about prosperity. Maybe you've done this uh, every once in a while. And if you haven't done this, I wouldn't suggest you do it because it'll depress you, especially if you're, you're my age. But have you ever gone back and said, if I'd only invested X amount of dollars this many years ago in that particular company? Anybody ever done that kind of exercise? I'm the only dumb one in the group. Okay, well, if you haven't done it, don't do it. So this week I looked at Walmart. I said, you know, that's kind of the typical one. I said, what if I had invested $10,000 in Walmart back in 1980? I just, and just left it alone. Didn't put another penny in it today, uh, in it over the years, right? Today, I would have 74,500 shares of stock, which would be worth $3.9 million. <laughs> Pretty good investment, right? Okay. But I wasn't thinking long-term. I didn't know anything about Walmart in 1980. I, I wasn't privy to that, you know, crystal ball type of information. So I'm kind of limping along with the rest of you. Though, if you did that, if you invested $10,000 in 1980, we want to talk to you after the service. We want to get the building paid for. And, and, and y'all look like you already need a little more elbow room. Start talking about the next edition. I'm just being silly, okay? But the facts are, this investment that Jesus makes, he stakes everything on the cross. It's not like he had $10,000 and if he lost that, he had another 50,000, so that 10 didn't matter. Jesus stakes everything on the cross. He trusts that his sacrifice will be accepted by God. But if it isn't, we're in big, big trouble. So I haven't spent a whole lot of my life in casinos. In fact, I spend very little time in my whole life. I've maybe spent three hours in casinos. But I was in a casino in, uh, in New Jersey years ago, and I'm walking through with a friend of mine who's, who's a pretty good blackjack player. And I just watched him play blackjack. And then we're walking out, and he's got a few chips in his hand. And he's got this $5 chip. And we walk by the table, um, the spinning. Um, real, how do y'all know that? That was pretty... And uh, he looks at me and goes, when's your birthday? I said, January 30th. And so he takes this $5 chip and he puts it down on, on red 30 and the guy spins the wheel. And we're standing there and I am not making this up. I promise you, this is a true story. It hits red 30. 
right? So our $5 chip, notice it's our $5 chip now, <laughs> not his, right? Turned into $600. And I said two things. Half of that is mine because it was my birthday and we're leaving right now, <laughs> right? We staked it all. Now we lost five bucks. It doesn't matter. Jesus staked your eternal well-being on the cross. If Jesus fails, you're lost for eternity. If Jesus fails, I have no hope. We should go out and sedate ourselves as best we can, any way we possibly can, because we are all doomed to suffer the wrath of God because we've offended God by, her, by disobeying him and by harming one another. But it actually pays off. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. What is the payoff? It's the redeemed sons and daughters of God. The fact that God can forgive us, that is what is prosperity in the mind of God, that he is actually rich in salvation. I want to take you for just a moment to to kind of the end game. I want to kind of show you where the dividends pay off in, in an event that has been recorded in scripture already, but has yet to happen. I'm going to take you to Revelation chapter 7, and John gets a glimpse into the future. God gives him a look at something that that even to this day has not yet occurred, but he shows them the dividends that will be paid through the cross of Christ. John says, after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from every tribe, from all tribes, and the peoples and the languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. If you're a disciple of Jesus, you can say to other people, I'm actually talked about in the Bible. (laughs) My identity is actually in the Bible, and it's right there in Revelation chapter 7, because the cross is the prosperity of God. And Jesus gave everything in order that we might be saved. The implication of the cross is not just that the name of Jesus is good and that we've been adopted, but that our salvation is identified as prosperity in God's economy. Thirdly, not only do we see the, the, the name and the prosperity, but we see Jesus going from suffering to satisfaction. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. That's another way of describing the cross of Christ. When Jesus hung on the cross, it was the anguish of his soul. Think about what that means. I don't know that I've ever experienced genuine, true anguish. I've lost people that I've loved, but typically those that I've lost, grandparents or my father, they they lived a a long life. They, They knew the Lord, and I was very sad when they passed away, but I can't say that my soul was anguished. But I've stood next to the graves of parents who are burying their children. And I've, I've seen anguish. I've looked at it. I've been next to it. And it's an awful, awful thing. We use the word heartbroken far too flippantly. Jesus was literally heartbroken. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Isaiah reminds us that at the start of this passage that that the Messiah was stricken and smitten and afflicted and pierced and crushed and wounded and it wasn't anguish, but that was then. Now, how is he described? He is described as satisfied. And that, that the way that verb is written, the way that word is written, it means he's satisfied now and he's satisfied forever. 
There will never come a time where he is no longer satisfied in what he has done on the cross. Therefore, the language we see in verse 12 is the language of victory, right? Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. Another word there could be with the strong, with the mighty. He shall divide the spoil with the strong. This is victory language, right? This is, it's all said and done. The dust is settled and our side won, right? In Cardinal Nation, we get that, don't we? We understand what it means. I'm not going to say anything to the Cubs fans today, but I'm, but as Cardinals, we've, we, we've won the World Series. We know what that means. My son's a graduate of University of Alabama. He understands what it means to be national champions. I'm doing my dead level best not to get excited about the Blues too soon this year. But boy, oh boy, they looked really good last night. I mean, they looked great. They made the best team in the NHL look awful. But I'm not getting on the bandwagon. I'm not going to do it to myself, right? But this is championship language. This is victory language. What happened on the cross was the suffering, but the resurrection brings satisfaction. And this is a strong word in our, in our culture because our society is built on dissatisfaction, is it not? Every commercial you watch plays on your dissatisfaction. You have a nice house, but it's not the nicest. You drive a wonderful car, but there's actually a better car that you could be driving, right? There's, there, you go to a good school, but there's a better school that you could maybe get into, right? Everything that is, that is spoken to us in the context of advertising and marketing tells us that we ought not be satisfied until we have more. And Jesus says, when I look at my people, when I look at the result of the cross, when I realize that I've purchased for all of eternity the souls of those who put their faith in me, it just doesn't get any better. And it never will. That's what God thinks of you as a disciple of Jesus. When he looks at you, that's the joy that he has. That's the satisfaction that wells up in his heart when lost sinners like you and me are saved by his sacrifice. The transition from suffering to satisfaction, but one other observation in this text, and that is the title that is now bestowed upon Jesus as he comes to life and is glorified by his father. And that is, he is the righteous one. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, be accounted righteous. Do you hear the, hear the pride in there? And I, and I, and I jotted down the notes of a, a proud papa. Here's God looking at his son and saying, that's my boy. Look at what he's done. He's the only righteous one, by the way. You can't find anybody else in the entire Bible who is given that title of the righteous one. Abraham, it says he believed God and he got credit as righteous, but it never says Abraham's the righteous one. Never says Moses was the righteous one. Never says that, that, that King David was the righteous man. I'm gonna save you that study. You don't have to go and look. The apostle Paul, nobody's righteous except the son of God. When God the father raised Jesus from the dead, he put his stamp of approval on his sacrifice for all time. He said, he is the one that not only is righteous, but he does what? He makes others righteous. How does he do that? By trusting in God. It says by knowledge, my righteous one shall be, uh, my servant shall make many acquitted. What did he know? 
What did Jesus understand about himself and about God that would allow him to see it all the way through to the end? I want to take you back to Isaiah 9 for just a second. This is a passage of scripture we typically look at at Christmas time. So see, you're getting two for one this morning. You're getting Easter and you're getting Christmas and no extra charge, right? Isaiah says in chapter 9, for to us a child is born. Speaking of the Messiah, speaking about Jesus, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon him, his shoulders. And whose name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and how long? Forevermore. How do we know that? Because the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish that. Now, it's easy for us to look back into this passage and go, well, of course, that's Jesus and that's what he did on the cross. But put yourself in Jesus' shoes and you're going to the cross and you know what it means and you know how awful it is and you're the one that has to die. You're the one that has to suffer the wrath of God. Nobody else. You're the one that has to take the beating and to see it all the way through to the end. And you can imagine how the, the walls begin to close in on you. Jesus was fully human while he was fully divine. I can't imagine the pressure he was under, but the gospel tells us that he sweat blood. He was so anxious over this event in his life. It almost killed him before he got there. And yet he saw it through to the end. In other words, his knowledge led him to trust God, to trust that those verses were true. He knew those verses. He had known them from all of eternity past. But now the test comes. Will you trust them all the way through? Anybody ever done a trust fall? Have ever done one of those where you've been on a backpacking trip or outward bound or scouts or something like that? And they got like eight people to stand behind you. And they put you up on an old platform and the people are holding their arms like that. You know, they kind of got them linked. And then you're supposed to fall back and they catch you, right? Unless they're my friends. They're like, one, two, three. Like, hey, did you hear about the game the other night? Right? But the whole notion is that you learn to trust so that when you're out on the rocks, when you're out on the trail and you're actually climbing, and that, that person's helping you with the ropes, you, you know you can trust them. It's an important thing. And Jesus trusted his father based on words like this. And there are many more in the Old Testament. And therefore, God says he is the righteous one. Messiahs, dead messiahs don't reign forever. Only living messiahs who have been approved by our father. And so his knowledge led to trust even while he was dying. Father, I will trust you to bring me back. What, is Jesus, what are Jesus' last words on the cross post-resurrection? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It's a statement of trust. Therefore, he's the righteous one. And that trust led to the resurrection. It leads to the salvation of all who put their faith in the righteous one because his righteousness now becomes ours. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake, God the Father made Jesus to be sin, even though Jesus didn't know any sin at all. He was perfect. So that what? So that in Jesus, sinners like you and me might become what? The righteousness of God. And so the words that you see surrounding the cross this morning, the words that Isaiah penned some 27 plus hundred years ago, speak of the implications of the resurrection that Jesus actually created for himself offspring, that the prosperity in the mind of God is salvation of folks just like you and me down throughout all the ages, 
that there's no more that could possibly be done to satisfy the Lord Jesus. He is at perfect emotional peace with what he has done and the salvation he is bringing. And therefore, he is the righteous one. What are you going to do with that this morning? How are you going to respond to that truth? I think there are a couple of applications for this implication. The first, it's clearly a call to faith. If you've kept God at arm's length all your life, whether you're five years old or or 90 years old, if you've kept God at bay thinking, if I just do some good things, he'll think I'm okay. I'll be a little better than my neighbor and he'll let me in. I hate to tell you this, but you're going down a, a pathway that'll lead you to death and eternal separation from God, but it doesn't have to be that way. The Messiah has come. His word's good. His sacrifice is good. You don't need to be afraid of God. You don't need to be worried about what he thinks of you. You need to understand what he, what he has done through his son and embrace that for yourself. Simply put your faith in Christ alone for your salvation. But for those who are here this morning who are disciples of Jesus, who have put their faith in him, there's a reason why we, uh, why we, why we call it the Easter celebration. <laughs> that word doesn't even really begin to do justice, does it? But it is cause, it is reason that all of our lives be lived in celebration of this one who gave himself for us. Will you pray with me? Father, we, uh, boy, we, we just bow before you in awe and thanksgiving that you would not only um, allow your son to go to the cross for us and give him the ability to see it through, but then his righteousness could be counted to our account. And the resurrection and the implications of the resurrection are of eternal good to our soul. Lord Jesus, may we have faith and believe that this morning. I pray if there's anybody in this room that that hasn't trusted that, Lord, that today would be a day of salvation. But Father, also may our lives be lived in celebration of that truth for your glory and for our good. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.